0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the show where we discuss how our political institutions are failing us and what to do about that. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America.
1: I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University.
2: And I'm James Wallner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute.
0: So, we're recording
1: this episode on March 5th,
0: 2021, just a week after the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, and a lot of the commentary I've read about it talks about this perpetuation of the big lie, and that big lie, of course, being the claim that the 2020 election was somehow stolen, although uh, no proof has shown up despite many attempts to to throw lots of things at the wall. And it's a... It's a dangerous lie because it's mobilized an attack on the U.S. Capitol so far. It's spurred impeachment. Uh, it is, seems to be justifying uh, widespread voter suppression across many Republican controlled states. And uh, it keeps being repeated over and over again, almost as if it were a kind of religious dogma. Maybe it's becoming so. So I I have to confess this is something that I, I both get and and I don't get. I mean I get it intellectually in some sense, like, you know, some sort of collective partisan mania, but there's something just weird about it uh, that I'm trying to understand. And the other thing I'm puzzling through in this moment is just how big of a threat it it really is. Because on the one hand, you know, it seems like there's sort of this odd sense of uh, normalcy that's returning to Washington because the Biden administration is like just kind of normal. But at the same time, this strange conspiracism is gaining steam and it's really powering a darker liberalism that's aimed right at the heart of democracy. So w- with this all in mind, there's no guest uh, I'd rather have on to talk to this than Nancy Rosenblum, who's a professor at Harvard University and also the co-author of a, a really excellent uh, book that that I can't stop thinking about uh, called A Lot of People Are Saying the New Conspiracism and the Threat to Democracy, because I think it really nails what's happening in our politics now and what's just so unusual about it. She's also written a ton on political parties um, and you know it's it's you know really a, a treat to have her on, and you know it's a particular treat for me because I'd say without her I, I might not be interested in political science because I took a, a class when I was an undergraduate at Brown University and she was teaching at the time, and it just like really opened my eyes to. Just how interesting political science is. And you know, we stayed in touch and she encouraged me to go to grad school and wrote a letter of recommendation. So so thank you, Professor Rosenblum, and, and welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you for inviting me to this conversation. Lee, neither of us have been at Brown for many years, probably over 20 years, and we've changed, and God knows the nation has been transformed. But I guess the constant for us both is the thrall of politics. And um given your introduction, I should put down my marker right away. I think that conspiracism is a very big threat. It is still a destructive force at the center of political life, and it's already wreaked damage that we don't really know how to undo. And the lesson I draw from this is that it doesn't take some sort of alternative ideology like communism or theism or fascism to degrade democracy, that angry, sterile conspiracism will do the work.
0: So, I want to dive right into um, this question of of what it is about this current conspiracism that that is particularly different and particularly dangerous because I mean one one thing that I, I took away from the book that you know before reading it I don't I don't think I appreciated how much conspiracism actually has some deep roots in the American political tradition including the Revolutionary War but what you identify in the book is that there's a new conspiracism, and it's different than the classic conspiracism. So one thing, I, and sort of setting up the conversation, can, can you help us think through what is distinct about this new conspiracism, and what are the, what are the hallmarks of it that make it so different and, and perhaps so dangerous?
3: Sure. Well, let me begin by saying that conspiracism is as old as politics, the claim that things are not as they seem, and some of these conspiracy theories are true. Some of them even serve democracy, like the progressives revealed the power of smoke-filled rooms and corporate boardrooms. And conspiracy theory is really about trying to trace the hidden channels of power, which is why it's been said, and I think you know wonderfully, that social science just is conspiracy theory. So some conspiracy theories are true and conspiracy theory is always with us. What's changed, what uh, my co-author, Russ Muirhead and I say is true, is that new, is that we think of conspiracy theory as if it's one word, but in fact, it's been decoupled. And what we have today is conspiracy without the theory. So I'll say a word of what that means. Conspiracy theory is an explanation and it operates the way any other explanation would. It looks at dots and evidence and patterns that are all tending the same way. And once all of these facts, especially facts that are withheld by reliable sources or admitted from official reports, once they're all gathered, then the plot emerges. And if you study or even have any exposure to the conspiracies around the assassination of Kennedy or architects and engineers for 9-11 truth, you'll see the conspiracy theory works that way. It mimics real research. It mimics scholarship. It's full of evidence and argument. And conspiracy theory, conspiracy without the theory, dispenses with all of that. It dispenses with everything. It dispenses with evidence and argument. Even when conspiracy claims are taken to court, there's no evidence or argument. One word suffices, rigged, the election is rigged, or hoax or fake news, right? And the validation for the conspiracy claims being made today, the conspiracy without the theory, is repetition and affirmation. Trump's watchword was a lot of people are saying this, and that's the title of our book. A lot of people are saying that George Soros is secretly funding the caravan of migrants trekking towards the uh, border. So the validation is repetition. A lot of people are saying, and and it follows from this that, in a way that belief in the truth of a conspiracy claim today is really not the best way of looking at it. It's that for people who adopt these conspiracy claims, they're true enough. That objective evidence doesn't have to warrant it. It's not a matter of believing the fact of the matter or of repeating what you know is false, but say is true anyway. It's that these conspiracy claims like rigged have a deeper truth to them. And that's what followers are willing to affirm. The example I like to use is, Trump's press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, they released a video showing a Muslim immigrant attacking an American citizen. And it turns out that the video was not real. And when asked about that at a press conference, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, well, even if the video isn't real, the threat is real. That is, there's a deeper truth here that followers cling to without the apparatus of evidence and argument.
1: I was really fascinated, Nancy, in uh, in your work with the role that you identify for institutions and the the implications of conspiracism on institutional delegitimation. And you also write about um, about the the way that conspiracism produces epistemic polarization. But I wonder um, a little bit about the kind of chicken and egg problem here, with specifically with with political parties. I mean, we know you've written a lot about parties and kind of defended parties and partisanship. I have also defended parties and partisanship in my writing. And I wonder to what extent the weakness of of political parties, the weakness of political institutions, people's lack of attachment to these institutions might have contributed to a situation in which we have this epistemic polarization.
3: I I think that it has. Um, I wouldn't say that party weakness caused conspiracism, but it was certainly permissive and it invited it into the center of political life. Here's here's what I mean. Conspiracism that has been a truly malignant force in politics today is tied to Trump and to the fact that it's been taken up and absorbed by Republican officials at every level of government out of cynicism or calculation or fear or submission, a variety of reasons. And I say that party weakness allowed all of this. Because before Trump, or at the time of uh, of the uh, primaries in 2015, party leaders thought that they could either stop him or contain him. They thought they could control what the party was and who was going to be in it at the leadership levels. They thought that they could, as they had in the past, uh, run the candidates and shape the party using institutional structures. And what emerged was that they couldn't. In part because of primary voters and for other reasons as well. So the party weakness allowed for Trump and Trumpists. And I believe that that's how very virulent conspiracism made its way into um, public fora of all kinds and to wreak the destruction that it has.
2: So I want to take a step back here and really kind of come at the foundational aspects of this idea because I think the conspiracy theory versus conspiracism distinction is is very apt and very insightful and I really enjoyed that and I, it really opened up my own understanding of things. So I wanna kind of explain my thinking to you and I wanna ask you a, a couple questions, but if we think about free politics or politics in general, it's very susceptible to conspiracism to falsehood, to lying, to those types of things, because the ability to act and to think for oneself in the in the political sphere, in the free world, includes the ability to deny reality. It includes the ability to rewrite the past. They're, they go hand in hand with one another. So we are free to do and to think what we will. What I find so interesting about this concept, and you mentioned it earlier about conspiracism, is that it dispenses with evidence and argument. In other words, it dispenses with the option or the possibility of persuasion and bargaining and negotiation with one's equals. It dispenses with the kind of common space, the political space in which we all have in common, where we all inhabit, where common sense prevails, because common sense reflects that the world in which we all share in common. It dispenses with politics in a very theoretical sense. And what I find so interesting about this is that when you dispense with politics you're basically dispensing with truth. If you think about it, if you go back to Socrates and he's talking to his fellow interlocutors down at the market on the you know the street corner hanging out and you know his position is well there is a truth out there. We certainly know there's a truth out there, but I can only see the world through my own senses. You can only see the world in your own senses and if we want to get a sense of reality in the round We have no other option but to come together and to interact with one another, to persuade one another, to argue. And because people who are conspiracists can't persuade, they reject politics. They reject persuasion, which is, I think, where a lot of the dysfunction we are today. They try to delegitimize and push people outside of politics and what is acceptable in the political sphere. And so If my understanding of this concept is correct, my first question is: What is the best way to combat conspiracism? Then, you know, is our current response to conspiracism does it mimic it in any way? Right? Are we are people who are you know opposed to conspiracists doing this? Are they the other side of the coin in some respects, coming at it from this very theoretical perspective? And if so, what are the ultimate consequences then for the political realm writ large? What are the consequences for politics if we're all just delegitimizing one another instead of engaging in politics?
3: Well, you've given a terrific and rather deep um, background account of the problem here. So let me begin with your beginning question about truth in politics. And let me start outside of politics. Most of what we know, we take on faith. Our own experience in life only takes us so far. And basically what we know, we learn from others or take from experts, we take on faith. Often we call that just common sense. And it matters what the the sort of community is that's teaching us what we need to know to act in the world. But we, we rely on others for that. We don't always in every instance have to exercise our own judgment. Politics is different. Because if politics, voters and officials and so on do have to exercise their judgment all the time. And um, if you're acting in politics, having dispensed with argument and evidence, then you're not using judgment at all anymore or your political judgment is going to be completely disfigured. And what we have is, I, and I use this phrase for it. what we have is a kind of epistemic polarization that runs much deeper even than partisan polarization. What I mean by that is that once we've dispensed with evidence and argument and some sort of shared notion of the communities that teach us things, we have no basis on to agree on what it means to know something. This goes about as deeply as can be. What does it mean to know something? What does it mean to know that the National Park Service doctored the photographs of Trump's inauguration to make the crowd seem smaller than the crowd that he claimed had come out for him, and without this, and with this epistemic polarization, without any agreement on what it means to know something, it's not just um, that that we we don't have any kind of uniform truth. It's not just that we can't agree. Politics is full of disagreement. It's that we can't even have grounds for disagreement. I think that that's the sort of very profound absence of any sort of level of ground that's going on here. And, I, I, and what it means in politics in particular, this uh, inability to agree on what it means to know something and therefore to even make judgments about which one can disagree, is what it's done to partisan political life because what conspiracism has done, one of the things that is delegitimated, perhaps the most important thing, and I hope we can get back to delegitimation in a minute, is the notion of partisan opposition, the notion of a legitimate opposition. Once you think that the opposition has no right to exist as an opposition, it's treasonous or it's an enemy or whatever it is, Um, once you think that the opposition can be killed or exiled or jailed, or its voters suppressed, then you no longer have democratic politics.
0: So I want to shift the conversation a little bit to, to a question of how we got to this moment of delegitimization. And you talk a lot about Trump as sort of, I don't know if he's the apotheosis of this, or the avatar, or maybe both. But you know, in, in the book, you also talk about political polarization and in, in these remarks as well. So I think that's obviously part of it, but it seems like it may also have something to do with uh, the particular type of political polarization and the way that the, the, the parties have split as to have one party that's kind of the cosmopolitan party of experts and elites and, and universities – I mean, it really strikes me that the uh, uh, profession that was most uh, pro-Biden in this last election was uh, university professors, or at least one of the most. And, you know, then you have another party that has uh, really drawn its strength overwhelmingly from less educated, particularly people of religious faith. And I I do wonder if there's something about The faith aspect of religious faith that corresponds to a kind of good versus evil conspiracism. And, you know, the the other thing that that I think about is, you know, the the appeal of Trump in many ways was that the elites have failed us. This is maybe long aftershocks from the financial crisis, uh, from globalization. And a sense that the the policies that were sort of elite consensus in the in the 1990s, uh, I think, had real downstream consequences for the lives of a lot of folks in this country and in in many other countries. And then there's also a question of changing demographics uh, as a, a status threat. So how do all these explanations kind of come together? in in your mind or are we is there and, uh, and obviously also the question of of technology and media fracture uh you know these are these are explanations that i think are all posited do they have equal weight and is there anything about them that that makes this leads to this kind of conspiracism without theory uh as opposed to the the older more classic conspiracism
3: let me start with trump because i do think that um he didn't create conspiracism and he didn't even create all of the groups, the militia or the white nationalists or whatever that have always espoused conspiracy theory and acted aggressively in politics. But he did um, call them out and he gave them a collective identity. He gave them a collective identity which said that their conspiracism was at the center, was participatory, it was participatory politics, that, that there is this we out there, that we have a common enemy. He turned them as we see from last year into a a private army. So he created the identity of conspiracists as a collective and he was president, which means that his own compromised sense of reality could be imposed on the nation and could be used to alter uh, its institutions. So I think that we would not see what we've been seeing without Trump. Now that's not to say that the other causes and you've mentioned three or four of them weren't operative, Um, they were enabling. You probably wouldn't have had this kind of collective identity of conspiracism uniting all kinds of um, groups uh, were it not for the fact that other forces were at work. And the sociologists are in disagreement about what's most important. Some say it's um, economic despair and the fact that neither of the political parties addressed economic uh, despair or much less economic justice Some say, and I'm more inclined to this, that this was status anxiety on the part of people who uh, were seeing, were feared that there would be, they would be overcome, that Christianity would be obliterated, or that uh, white superiority would be uh, rescinded, and so on. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the conspiracism today is as much a culture war as it has anything to do with, um, um economics, but you can disagree about that. I think that you're right that the party polarization, and we can attach conspiracism to it today, is different from ordinary party polarization. It's not just that there's a range of issues and a range of solutions, and that people disagree and they and on a on a, on a graph there are extremes. It's that One of the parties today, I think, and this has been said often, has ceased to be a governing party. Uh, It's not clear what its policies are at all. And it also is a party that's learned that it cannot continue to hold office by diversifying itself. So it has uh, gone about holding power uh, by exciting a base and by um, trying to suppress votes. This is a very unusual and damaging situation. So that's my view of what what the principal impetus was, that is, Trump as president, creating a collective identity among conspiracists and putting it at the center of political life, and having a compromised sense of reality that he could impose on the nation. And the political polarization today is unlike what it's been in the past, because it's not just disagreement about solutions or a, a disagreement about problems where some people are extreme in one direction and some people, one party in another. But one of the parties at least has abandoned the business of governing in the public good and of having the iterative elections in which um, the you understand that your party is just a part and that there's going to be uh, changes in power and has given up on all allowing that won't allow it I think you mentioned also at the end where faith enters here, and I, I I think and I assume you meant religious faith, and it 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 does seem as if conspiracism is closely attached to some elements of faith evangelicalism, white evangelicalism that is I think that the for me the, the distinctive religious element of all of this is the apocalypticism and you see it very clearly in QAnon but you see it in conspiracism generally that is that uh, there's going and for QAnon there's going to be a storm at which everybody will be murdered or locked up and uh, heroes will emerge especially Trump and the world will be remade and I think that this notion of apocalypticism is brought to conspiracism through religious faith.
0: I just want to hang on that point and and some of the stuff that that you said and kind of tease out some of these connections in this kind of, uh, this kind of manichaean world view and i think one of the things that that is really striking about the current republican party at least as defined by those who are in power is the extent to which the the only policy agenda seems to be focused on changing election rules in a way to to make it harder for Democratic constituencies to to vote and to make Democratic constituencies' votes count equally. And that motivation is powered, I think, by this struggle of uh, politics being a battle between good and evil and a sense of deep threat that if Democrats ever get power, they're going to somehow crush Christianity in America and change the, the... the character of the country, and at the same time that this conspiracism is what justifies that. I mean, the, the uh, operative justification for all these voter ID laws is that Democrats are trying to steal the election, that they're somehow massive fraud despite the lack of proof. So, I mean, is this all kind of a bundle or is one thing driving something else? I mean, how, how should we think about all of these forces working together
3: I think your analysis is right, and then the, the causal question is the hard one. Uh, I think that the um, Republican attempt to change election rules and to stay in power without any particular policy or ideological reason to do it, uh, except, except uh, deregulation and libertarianism for for some of them, has been going back to the 1980s. None of that is new, and it's been a minority party that has been able to retain office where it has because of um, voter suppression and electoral rules. So this predates, I think, the conspiracism that we've seen come to a head in the last five or six years, depending on how you want to count. And what conspiracism did was amplify it. And in a sense, to remove, for some people at least, to remove the cynicism of it. Because if you look at uh, what the Republican Party has done in terms of trying to district and change electoral rules and so on to stay in power, it's it's cynical. It's quite straightforward. There's no artifice about it. What conspiracism has done is to give it a bizarre and fantastical but nonetheless sort of moral claim, which is that the opposition uh, is treasonous. That the opposition is going to has successfully begun to and will ruin the nation, and that the people who are taking the actions that you say the officials are taking and the um, aggressive and intimidating and ultimately violent actions of conspiracists uh, are are the actions of patriots. That's what's different, and it has ac- accelerated it and changed its if we can use this word in this context, it's, it's moral character.
1: Yeah. So I've, I have a depressing question. Um, (laughs) So I wanted to go back to something you said earlier about the, kind of deeper truths in the example that you used about this kind of claim about something involving Muslims, that then it was not literally true, but then it was, and you're saying Sarah Palin had said, well, you know, it's still a problem. And maybe I have the the person wrong there, but it was, it, that was the general idea. And I, I'm wondering how this sort of, how the role of, of race and xenophobia fit with this, this possibility that you raise about the end of politics um, where you say politics is the clash of competing interests and opinions joined to argumentation and negotiation. And it's shaped by processes that are judged legitimate. But politics is also the arena you write in which the common sense of ordinary people sets the terms of a shared reality. And I wonder to what degree this, this potential end of politics is is explicitly connected to the kind of emergence of a more vibrant multiracial democracy. Um, And it's, it's not just that this, these conspiracist claims are latching on to race because that's what's there, but that this is actually a kind of byproduct of racial backlash. This also gets to some points you've been raising about the, about the degree to which um, this is the product of a, of a culture war. I
3: think that uh, yes conspiracism and uh, the kind of party polarization we have is marking the end of politics. And uh, I see that because politics is always about disagreement. But here, there aren't even grounds for disagreement. I've said that before. Um, and you, the question you raise here is whether race and xenophobia sort of attaches to this, or whether it's a motivating Force, And I think it's very clearly a motivating force that the conspiracist, uh, fantastic fears are fears that have to do with race and xenophobia and anti-immigrant. And that's why I say that I think that the, the best explanation for the rise here is not economic, but status ang- anxiety. There, there can be no acceptance of legitimate political opposition if you think that the opposition is about to dilute your race or undo uh, religion and so on. If the claims against the opposition party are that they are destructive in an existential sense. And I think that that's what we have here. It is very much rooted in race and religion. And uh, it has uh, made democratic politics impossible because you want to uh, obliterate eliminate opposition.
1: Can I, I just want to sort of follow up. So the, the follow-up is basically about the end of, to get you to expand a little bit on the end, the end of politics, how close we are then to the, to the end of politics and, and what happens at the end of politics.
3: I don't know how close we are to it. I certainly think that Trump leaving the White House, whether or not he leaves the political scene, is critical to saving democratic politics. I, I can't repeat often enough the significance of all of this by the fact that we had a conspiracist mindset in the White House, someone without any notion of governing or of political negotiation, compromise, and so on, who invited this kind of absolutist, totalist thinking uh, into the center of politics. How close we are to, to this now that he has gone, I don't think we know yet. I mean, I think that we have a regime now, an administration now under Biden and with the Democrats that is, I think Lee said this at the very outset, is attempting to return to what we think of as normal uh, governing and normal political disagreement. But it's unclear that that how stable that is. We'll know that in part by the 2022 midterm elections, whether there are many, many Marjorie Greens brought into state legislatures and into uh, the federal government. Uh, so we we can't know, we can only anticipate. I, I think that it's going to be very hard to sideline the disorienting, delegitimating conspiracism when it appears as if one of the two major parties is completely wound up with it.
2: This really, I think, transitions into my question about how best to deal with it very well, because there's a distinction between the, the political world and the private world, the public and the private, the public and the open and the secretive private world. And if you think about conspiracy, conspiracy is not public. It's secret. It's private. It's almost not political. And if you think about conspiracy theory, it's often a it's a theory about this secret kind of non-public or private phenomenon. And it's a, it reflects a, an effort to bring that into the world. It may be wrong, but it it reflects an effort to bring that into the world. One of my favorite documentaries is a, a film called Room 237, and it's about The Shining in Stanley Kubrick's film, The Shining, 1980, and it's phenomenal. There's all these people, and there's different segments, and they talk about different theories about what Kubrick was doing. And one of them is like, well, he was apologizing for faking the moon landing. And it goes, but they're talking about them and they're providing evidence, which is what you mentioned earlier and in your book. And that reflects a, uh, however wrong it may be, it still reflects a a political activity. Conspiracism is, uh, I want to press you though, is it really a rejection of politics or is it a way of engaging in politics that people find distasteful. And I and I want to press you here because it seems to me that sometimes what we do is that we can label people as conspiracists or beyond the pale, for instance, and I'm equating these things now because I think they share a common uh, foundation and delegitimization to win arguments. So uh, voter ID is a phenomenal example. When you see arguments about voter ID, if you support voter ID laws, well, you're a racist. Well, it's hard to argue from that point. Right. It's hard to you're you're not allowed to participate in the argument. There's no give and take. There's no discussion of the empirical uh, reality. There's no nothing. It's just you're racist. And that, it seems to me, reflects at bottom the same kind of conspiracism or the same kind of activity that we see uh, that you describe as conspiracism. You're delegitimizing your opposition and you're pushing them outside the realm of politics. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Okay, but like, what's the best way to deal with people that are saying things like Marjorie Taylor Greene? Is it to let them say those things and then to argue with them, to ignore them, or is it to somehow punish them and push them outside of the realm of politics? And that's what I'm really struggling with because it seems to me that when you end up pushing, and I'm not blaming, this isn't like, I'm assigning responsibility here, but I think the phenomenon of when you push people outside of politics, they have nowhere else to go, but to non-political activity to resolve their disagreements. And that ultimately is what we want to avoid because that is ultimately violence and force and all of those other things that we don't like in this country. And so, I mean, how do I help me deal with this? How do I, how do we best deal with conspiracism that doesn't ultimately become uh, the same thing that we're trying to stop?
3: Let me, before I get to what to do, uh, let me engage with your premises here. Um, You asked whether this conspiracism is a rejection of politics or an engagement of politics. And certainly it's an engagement of politics in the sense that these people are electing people to office and they're entering public arenas and intimidating and screaming for what they want and so on. I call it, I think we can call it a rejection of politics in a deeper sense, which is to say, it's not clear that they have any purpose or policy or sense of the public good, they have grievances. But their political behavior is like Trump's himself, their political behavior is quixotic.
2: But can I, and just to interrupt real quick, I just want to ask you, but who gets to decide those, like the, who gets to assign motivations and who gets to decide the common good, right? I mean, that's what I'm struggling with. And I'm not disagreeing with you. I think uh, in some respects, I agree with you, but I'm just trying to better understand how this works in practice without becoming the thing that, you know, we're ostensibly trying to stop.
3: Well, I, I I'm, I don't know who owns it. Uh, I'm just trying to analyze it, and in analysis of it, um, I, I, I think that this isn't certainly it isn't democratic political engagement. It's quixotic for the reasons that we've said that it is has no obvious purpose. I like to think about the assault on the capital in those terms because they they wanted to stop the elections. Uh, results and put Trump back into office. But after presumably stopping the count of electoral votes, then what, then what? There's no then what. And I think that in politics, you look to consequences and you have purposes and plans, and all of that's missing. It was missing for Trump and his administration, except some self-serving things, and it's missing for conspiracists. I, I would go on to talk about delegitimation here, but you 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 seem to be focused on if you push them out of public arenas, right? If you don't, if they lose uh, votes in state legislatures, people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, or if they are pushed out of public arenas altogether, because they're no longer invited in by Trump or by his party. Uh, is it going to be worse? Are they going to turn to violence? And is it going to be, you know, the anti-politics in a sense, not just non-political, but anti-political? And I think that the answer is no. I think that if if they are, through valid democratic means, once again, returned to the margins, they will not be out there trying to um, kidnap the governor of Michigan, because the president says liberate Michigan. I mean, there have always been exactly these groups out there. Trump did not invent them, but Trump and other circumstances invited them into political and even electoral life. He created this collective army and phenomenon. And I think that they will return to the margins if they are not um, brought into political arenas in meaningful ways. I don't think that that will happen quickly because I think you have a party, once again, that's completely entwined with this, with militias and white nationalists and the MAGA Trumpists and so on. So I don't think, I, I would disagree with you. I don't think it's doing to them. It's, doing, it's, it's eliminating them or marginalizing them from politics using democratic means. Whether that can be done or not, I don't know. And I certainly think it can't be done in the short term.
0: So I want to pick up on that point and think about what happened with the effort to uh, strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee positions and the way that the Republican caucus in the House responded to both Liz Cheney and Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, in which the, the my takeaway was that they had harsher uh, words for Cheney than they did for for Green and part of that calculus is uh, calculus that they feel like they need Marjorie Taylor Greene's voters to get elected and the people who support QAnon and so it's, uh, it's a question of sort of supply and demand problem in a sense that you know the the demand comes from these these groups uh uh, grassroots activists in Magaland who you know seem to want this you know they, they can't get enough of it they they throng to uh, this kind of trumpist you know combat conspiracism uh but at the same time we you you talk about the supply of it that trump is in you know is supplying it uh inviting people in elevating it so it seems like the challenge is how do you find political leaders on the right with the courage to say enough is enough and it seems like there are a few of them who have stuck their heads up uh, adam Kinzinger, uh, liz cheney uh, mitt romney and they're kind of in this in this space where they they have you know no no support for for that so like, how should, I mean, you, you talk about the importance of of leaders kind of standing up and saying enough is enough, but like, how do we get those leaders, particularly in the Republican Party?
3: Uh, right now you don't. I, th- I think uh, it's barren ground there. I think you you have some little gestures that when it comes, for example, to the primaries coming up for uh, in the 2022 elections that McConnell would like to try to once again, do the kind of gatekeeping and leadership control of the kind of candidates that are running and that Trump has thrown down the gauntlet. This is gonna be his business for the next two years is vetting candidates at at a vengeance. So I, I see no hope for the Republican party. There are a couple of spokespeople. And I do think that speaking truth to conspiracists And the only way to address conspiracists, it has to come from their own leaders. That is, it has to come to people who share their grievances but who reject their conspiracism and violence. And that's not on the horizon. It's not on the horizons. And you've also created, I haven't mentioned this yet, but you've created a, a population of conspiracy entrepreneurs that keep these things going through different media outlets and make money off it. So you have created an industry of conspiracism that's operative and that's very strong. Um, I do wanna say one thing here when we, uh, that we talk about the, oh, before I do that, let me just say that the, the Republicans that you talk about who have spoken out, let's take Liz Cheney as an example, they may be opposed to the big lie and to trying to stage a coup against the government and the results of the election. But otherwise, they are still at the heart of the Republican Party that is, into, that is a minority party and that is into voter suppression, and that doesn't particularly have a policy agenda for the nation. So even they are not the sources of reconstruction of a party that's a governing party. I did want to say one thing, um, and that has to do with the, the big lie that has, that has taken over uh, politics on both sides for the last, uh, since November the big lie of voter fraud. I think that there have been two big lies, and the big lie wouldn't have operated without the second. That is, the first is the voter fraud, but the other is the one that's been going on for five or six years, and that is the wholesale delegitimation of political opposition and the Democrats. You could imagine a situation in which you believe that your party has lost office because of voter fraud, But you think that that can be corrected, and that you believe in iterative elections, and you're going to swallow it and go on and make the changes you have to do to win the next round, two years or four years from now. But if you think that the enemy, that the opposition is an enemy that is destructive, that it's an existential challenge, then of course you are going to have to uh, take violent uh, action against their holding office. So it's not the fact of voter fraud per se, but it's the voter fraud combined with this notion of the opposition is illegitimate that matters. So
1: I wanted to actually ask in a little bit different direction since we have a lot of people uh, who listen to our podcast who are in the classroom right now. And this has been kind of a, a constant problem that people have brought up. And a lot of political scientists, I think, really value teaching to a, a wide variety of students of a, like a wide variety of ideologies and partisan backgrounds and not bringing our own politics in the classroom. And like, that's sort of how a lot of us were trained and, you talk in your book about the kind of idea of who owns reality, which I think is actually a really important concept for teaching about having the shared framework for reality that we all talk about. And and to get to James's question about kind of like who is the arbiter, like being a professor is, uh, is, is intrinsically being that in some ways. And so we, I'm wondering... We if, are
2: the arbiters, Julia. You, me, and Lee.
1: That's right. Um, I'm wondering if... Uh, if you've thought about how this affects those of us who are responsible for conveying argumentation in that, in that context or about how, how we teach in the situation in which I think a lot of us are increasingly coming to this conclusion that you have come to that the Republican party is responsible for a lot of these, a lot of these problems. And that's very difficult to say in a way that doesn't make you sound like a, a bald partisan.
3: Hmm. Um, I think that pedagogically, if you're talking about classrooms and students, uh, the the focus, as I understand it, really has been on misinformation and disinformation and computer literacy, where you would go to to find accurate information or to find challenging information. And I think, you know, that's that's clearly important. But the 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 wider question that you're asking is about. Who owns reality, and who are the arbiters? And I think that that's, uh, in a, in a way, a much more philosophical than practical, practical thing. I think that who owns re- that question, who owns reality, is different from from the question about truth or misinformation, and it's different even from the question of uh, facts uh, and uh, how you validate facts or how you discern the bias behind facts or how you um, negotiate. Factual disagreements. Uh, Who owns realities is is really a a more more philosophical question. And what it, it wouldn't ordinarily come up in life that is, the basic horizons of the world we live in and how we talk to one another about politics and everything else are pretty much settled. And what's been so disorienting about this period is that here comes somebody. And and groups that follow him, conspiracist groups who claims to own reality. He has a compromised sense of reality, and he claims to impose it on the nation. And there are no arbiters. There are either followers or uh, resistors. There can be no arbiters for who owns, for who owns reality. Lee started early on talking about Plato and the metaphor of the cave. And this is a philosophical question that I don't think can be resolved uh, through politics.
2: So it's, uh, it's, it is a philosophical question, I agree. And one of the th- reasons why I find your book so illuminating and interesting, and actually I think everybody needs to read it, is because right now we have in the political realm the coin of victory, if you will, is to say that someone's position of reality or understanding of reality is wrong. And when we do that, we ultimately that's how we win. And, you know, if we take Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I want to get, you know, bring us kind of to conclusion here and give you the last words, but Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance, you know, the Constitution gives the Congress and the House the authority to punish its members and to expel members. I I understand that. But it also, there's the privilege from arrest clause, there's a speech and debate clause. And so it comes down to, because you said something I find distasteful. I'm going to remove you from committees, which you have no right to. I understand that. We may, you know, there's been talk about in the past of expelling members. Well, what, is, what does the world look like? What does our world look like when we expel people from Congress, from the political realm, from the right to participate based on what they say, however crazy it may be? I'm not, in, and I'm not, I don't know the answer to this. I'm not saying suggesting I do. I'm not saying that you're right or wrong. I just... I, I don't know what that looks like. And it ultimately, you know, we talk about the Republicans delegitimizing the Democratic Party. Well, but when we simultaneously turn around and say, well, the Republican Party is in the throes of conspiracism, is no longer interested in doing politics. Well, that sounds an awful lot like delegitimizing the Republican Party to me. And I end up seeing two sides of the same coin in some respects, not all, but some. And I, and I don't know what to do with that, but I'm going to... I want to, I, I do, this is a great book and I haven't finished it yet, but I am working on it. I highly recommend it because I think the phenomenon you've touched on is extraordinarily important. It is extraordinarily corrosive and it highlights the importance of politics in the public realm. So I really want to thank you for coming on and participating in our, um, in in our conversation today. And I just want to turn it over to you and, and just let you have the last word and Tell us what we need to be thinking about, what we need to be doing besides buying your book, which will be in the show notes and, um, and reading your book, which hopefully everyone will be doing. But how can we be better citizens moving forward, regardless of what we may ultimately believe? How can we all together come and make sure that this world, this political system that we have, this phenomenal thing, keeps going?
3: That's a great set of hard questions for the ending. Let me first reject your suggestion of symmetry. I don't think attacking the Republican party for failing to govern and attacking the Republican party for becoming entwined in a kind of fantastical conspiracism is the same as delegitimating the Republican party. That is delegitimation means something and it's not just mistrusting them or attacking them or saying they're biased or that they're wrong. Delegitimation says that this institution, in this case, the Republican Party, has no meaning, value, or authority, and therefore no claim to our compliance. That's why it leads to violence. Democrats are not voter-suppressing Republicans. It's going the other way. We're not keeping them from politics. We're resisting the kind of politics that they have brought to the table. Um, That is not the same as delegitimation. Um, I think that you began with a question that has a name, and the name of your question is the paradox of democracy, that is, or sometimes this goes by the name militant democracy. That is, when is it that people, voters or party officials or whatever can decide that an opposition is so dangerous that it means to destroy democracy? And many European constitutions allow for banning parties or for holding candidates preventing candidates of parties from holding office because their objective is to undermine democracy. In America, we have none of those things and there are good historical reasons for that. But the result of it is that uh, the question you raise becomes a question here in a way that it isn't everywhere around the world. That is, what do you do with a Marjorie Taylor Green? You can kick her off committees, but you, we don't prevent someone who believes that the opposition should be murdered from taking office. And so the defense of democracy here in a way is more indirect and more complicated than than it may be in some places that allow for defending democracy against its declared enemies. Um, What what can citizens do? How do you get good citizens? I, I think that we have them. I think that the enormous turnout for the last election uh, was inspirational, and I don't think it will disappear. And I think that, and I, I always come back to this, although we haven't discussed it much today, I think that the beating heart of democracy in America really is civil society and voluntary associations. And we have seen the multiplication and invigoration of civil society groups that are opposed to conspiracism and some of the other political malignancies out there, I think that Black Lives Matter has been very, very interesting. Not only um, have they resisted uh, the absurdities, not only have they um, uh, uh, been very successful in speaking truth about certain things like uh, uh, racial injustice in this country and changing public attitudes, But the leaders of Black Lives Matter have done what no social movement really has done as effectively. And that is to link grievance and protest to voting and um, regular political participation. And I think that's going to be the answer. I think that various kinds of voluntary associations are going to do just that.
0: That's an optimistic note from a a somewhat pessimistic conversation. I mean, I, I, I think I'm left with just a, a, a sense that there's a, a real existential challenge for democracy in this moment um, in America. And this is going to be a hard problem that's going to take us a, a while to solve. And, you know, I, I mean, it really creates this fundamental challenge of what do you do in a two party system when one of the two major parties has uh, basically gone outside of what we think of as liberal democracy and and I, I mean that's that is a really hard hard question but this this conspiracism framework i think you know for me uh, it really kind of puts a puts a name on what is happening and at least, you know, having a name and and also understanding how unprecedented it it is, at at least is a, is a start. Julia, James, you want to just give a few quick sentences for what you took away from this conversation?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm still really thinking about is the kind of relationship between this and, and our institutions, the questions of, of why the questions of, as Nancy, so I think really, um, clearly articulated earlier in the conversation about the linkages between Republican Party weakness, Trump, and this sort of broader impact on our politics. So as usual, I'm left with with more questions than answers, and that's what we aim for here.
2: That's, you know, in the words of Heidegger, that's what thinking is basically all about. When you ask a question, if you don't end up with more questions, then you're not doing it right. Um, So, and on that note, I would just add that, again, I find this a very, it was a very provoking and and insightful conversation. It really got my gears turning in my my head, which is always a good thing, especially uh, in the morning. And I would just encourage all of our listeners to, to check out your work and to read your book and to really just engage the world around them in critical fashion and just think for yourselves and try to understand and more clearly uh, what's happening and then how you ultimately want to act in that world because that's what it's ultimately all about, folks.
0: Thank you, Nancy. Uh, we really enjoyed this conversation and this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.
2: This
3: podcast is part of the Democracy Group.